Welcome to the Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com. Okay, we're going to start with questions today. First question, just know this. If you weren't here last Sunday and you're here this Sunday, your head's going to spin around a few times. I'm preaching a three-part series So just know that uh, I can't go back and cover everything I covered, so you need to go home and get on your computer and look on Calvary's website and go to our sermons and to our live stream or on-demand, whatever it is, and watch last week's sermons. I don't get paid extra for that, so just go ahead and do that, you know. Uh, But you will probably need to do that. But we're going to, because last week, I mean, we talked about some, some simple things like the fact there's not just one God. There's a pantheon of gods. Every nation has its own God, and the Bible says all that. Hmm. So now your head's spinning if you weren't here last week. Give me, we, we'll cover a little bit of that because I know we need to cover some of that again a second time. So God, help us. We, we are your people, and we want to hear your Word in us. Lord, your word is life. So Holy Spirit, you're the teacher. Come and speak to us. Make us a part of our creator's story. God, the part you've called us to play, that we could bear your image, that we could be your sons and daughters. Oh, Lord, give us insight and wisdom and help us to walk humbly before you and to know that You're going to finish what you started, Lord. Your creation is going to be gloriously filled with your presence in a way that we see it and know it, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We just say, yes, Lord, we want to be a part of that story. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, I'm going to answer a few questions first, all right? Things I've heard over the week and, and just stuff that we ought to answer. Um, and let me, let me go back for you who weren't here last week. When I talk about there's a pantheon of gods, there, there really are other gods. The word Elohim, God, in the Old Testament, it's like over 2,000 times it's used. Most of the time it's used of Yahweh, the creator God, the one as evangelicals we've always believed in. But a bunch of times it's also used of other divine beings who are created Oh, hear me. They're little G gods. The Bible calls them gods. They're Elohims. We'll look at a couple of passages today. And they're created by Yahweh. They're his sons. He has a spiritual family, just like he has an earthly family. He has both of those. And the spiritual family was created first. We're created later. In fact, even Job tells us, I think chapter 38, where all the sons of God, when God was doing the material creation rather than the heavenly dimension in which he lives, the heavenly places the Bible talks about and describes, um, it says that, that when he was creating the material realm, that the other sons of God were rejoicing. They were like, wow, this is really good. They looked at creation just like God did in Genesis when he created the heavens and the earth, and each day he said what? This is good. This is, this is good work. I mean, this is really a, he's a creative genius. And the sons of God, the other gods, they're called gods in the Bible bunches of times, not just a couple. And um, they were like, wow, God, Father, because they are created too. They're his sons too. And it's like they were impressed. Like, this is really good. We like this. Now, they're not going to always stay in that frame of mind, as we're going to see. 
But uh, the first question I want to address just real quickly is a really, really good question. And then I'm going to get to all you theologians who really have some good questions too out there. And the, and the first one is, why study this at all? Why do we need to know there are other gods? Why do we need to know there's another spiritual family? Why do we need to see all this in the Bible? It's like, we missed this the first time through. I mean, oh, I missed it. You know, again, I've spent the last three years working on this before Jeff finally says, okay, we can teach it now because he just couldn't stand it anymore. He said, we've got to learn this stuff. So, and Pastor Jeff, again, if you're a guest, I'm Pastor Steve. Pastor Jeff, our senior pastor, just had back surgery a little over a week ago, and he's at home recuperating, so keep him in your prayers. And I'm sure he's watching the screen anxiously this morning. Hi, Brother Jeff, saying, oh, gosh, Steve, don't mess this up. This is really tough. So um, we'll, we'll do our best. Um, so why do this at all? I mean, we've had all these years and all this time. We, ne- we didn't believe any of this stuff. We didn't see any of this stuff in the Scripture. Why do we need to know it now? Why do we see, need to see it now? I'm just going to give you my reasons. He'll probably tell you his own. In fact, I asked him before I started preaching this, tell me why you think this is important. I got a four-page document, single-spaced. So thank you, Pastor Jeff. I decided not to preach your reasons because it would take a series to do that. But it's really, it's really good stuff. I really like it. Uh, here's mine, uh, and, and some of ours overlap, sure. Number one, Calvary, we've always been a pioneering church. That was one of the assignments when we started as a church. I mean, we knew intimacy, community, kingdom. That's what God put on my heart as a vision for this church, that we would cultivate, establish people in intimacy with God, express true Christian community, and extend the kingdom of God in the earth. Some of that took a few years to develop, but that's where we land. Intimacy, community, kingdom. Those are very, very important to us. But then we had some sub-things, and one of them was a pioneering church. We didn't want to be afraid to go wherever God was going to take us. And sometimes it was in places like this. It's like, wait a minute. We didn't hear, we hadn't heard this before. We didn't know this before. So God took us into some new areas, and we pioneered that. We've written books about it. We've done conferences. We had ministry team training yesterday to share some of our stories, some of the pioneering areas God was doing in us, and not just in us, and all around the world in different churches, different areas. Like we were just a part of God's big picture, our little part. This is ours. And uh, we've been doing ministry team training since 1988, and we've still got folks coming. I don't remember what it was, 18 churches or something yesterday had people here. It's like God made us that. It's like, pioneer this. Help, and take, don't be afraid to take some new trails. If you get off the road, I'll, I'll steer you, and you can go back and start over again. Like, we're not afraid to make a mistake. We want to know God, right? I mean, the real God. That's when one of the treasures of Calvary, to me, is a heart in, in you guys and in me. It's like, let's get to know God. I mean, the real God. We don't want to just have a churchy God. We want the creator, and we want to have him in our midst. And a few times he showed up in some ways we weren't looking for or ready for at all, but he showed up. I remember I stood right here one morning at 8.30 for our first Sunday morning service, and when I started to preach, God said, don't say anything. And I was just learning he actually talked to people. You know, I wasn't quite convinced yet, but I was like, okay, if that's God, I'm going to do it. So I just stood here, and I was looking at you, and you were looking at me. Finally, God said, ask Pastor Jeff if he's got something to say. And when I did, he fell into the floor and started screaming, ah! you know, just bawling his eyes out. And all of a sudden, it was like the, the, this atmosphere in this room just was torn open, and we began to see ourselves before God as he was looking at us. It's like, we needed to repent. We weren't ready for the presence of God. People, I mean, we're, we're good bad 
Baptist. It's like this doesn't go on, you know? People were running to the altar and crying, and people were kneeling in their chairs. Then they started calling people, their friends and neighbors, you got to come to church. God is here. And they'd come in the back door, and they'd fall down on their face and just start repenting or run to the altar. And I'm, I'm the pastor, you know? So I'm up here. I'm like, God, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do now. <laughs> it's like, so I just stood there or sat there. Uh, I think I tried to share the four spiritual lies with one lady, but she wasn't listening to anything I was saying. And finally, I stopped because I thought, this is not working. So she, I said, what is God saying? That's a pretty good question to ask. She said, repent, repent, repent. That night, we baptized 17 people that gave their heart to Jesus. That service went from 8.30 to 2.30. We never had another, we never had a sermon, a song, an invitation. We, we didn't have Sunday school. We didn't have second service. It's like God was just here and people came and God did his work and we just accepted it. So we've had several encounters like that over the years that we weren't looking for. Um, so pioneering church, that's a long answer, but I really want to say that because this is important for who we are to say, God, we trust you. And we want to follow you, speak to us. And we believe this word is God's word that will guide us and teach us. And that is our commitment to teach what it says, not what we think. And as we tried to look at some last week, again, we can't near about cover this topic, but we need to look at it because of our assignment to pioneer. Uh, second thing I wrote down, but why I think we need to do this, as I've already said, I want to know God. And again, I think that's been one of the hallmarks of this church. Like, we we're people that just want to know God. Well, this is God. He has two families. He's got a spiritual family, and he's got an earthly family. And his plan, I've said it a bunch of times from this pulpit, is that God wants to put heaven and earth, God and man, matter and spirit together. He wants it all to be united into one coherent universe, world, that creation that bears his image of the heavenly and bears the image of the earthly. And Jesus comes as the last Adam to bring the heaven and the earth together. We'll talk about him doing that next week. The world, third thing, we li- the world we live in is more alive than we understand. We need a living world. We've just about killed it with science and rationalism, again, which is really good. I love science. I, I love that stuff. And it's... Um, it's important. It's like one of the gifts to our culture. I think different cultures have different aspects of God, different parts of his nature revealed in them. And and rationalism has brought medicine and education, a lot of good things, a lot of positive things. But like everything, it has a dark side. The dark side of rationalism is it'll rob you of faith. And that's kind of its job in a sense. What does rationalism want to do? It wants to explain everything, right? It wants to make it rational. So, okay, now I understand it. I can categorize it and everything. But the truth is, there's a great thing about rationalism, but the dark side is, uh, what are you going to do with the things that are transrational, as we call them? Not irrational, but transrational. They're beyond our understanding. How do you lay hands on a person and they're healed of cancer? We've seen that happen a bunch of times. It's like, you can't explain that. It's not rational. We didn't figure out something. We just asked God and, and we served him and he did what he wanted to do. So it's like there are transrational parts. We need this world that's alive. I'm teaching three Wednesday nights. It started last Wednesday night with our teenagers and talking about this kind of stuff with them. Maybe not the same depth as we're doing in here, but talking to them about how alive the world they live in because it's being taken away from them, that this world is just the physical, just the material. It's like, yeah, okay, but it's also supposed to be integrated with the spiritual, and we want to help them do that. So they, 
I, I think they came away pretty excited, Jane. Did you? It's like, they were kind of like, wow, haven't heard it like this before. So be praying for this coming Wednesday and the next one as I, I continue with them. So the world we, we live in, it's really alive and, and our influence is important. We have a role to play as God's people. Another reason why, because we need to depend on the Holy Spirit. And one of the things he is, he's a teacher. That's actually one of his roles, right? So he wants to teach us. So when he has things and we're ready for it, he's like, now, I want to speak these things. I want to put these things out. In fact, the Bible, God tells us in the Bible several times, lock that away. Like some things are like, we can't understand them yet until the the end times, you know, which I believe we're we're really close on top of that. Uh, And and yet the Holy Spirit, the the Father says in the Bible, this this is not going to be understood until the latter days. This is lock this up in the scripture until the end time. Then people are going to see and understand what this is. I think there are a number of those things. And the Bible says there there are several of those kinds of things. So we just want to keep following the Holy Spirit. And he's pressing this in us. Again, I've been working on this three years, and Jeff's been praying, and it's like, Okay, we feel like the Holy Spirit saying, let's go. Let's keep moving because this is important at the time. It's important that we know the seasons in which we live. You go back and do a YouTube class on, on Wednesday nights, and the last one I did was on the season that, that we're living in, that we live in seasons of, of the Lord, seasons. And Jesus said it's important to know the seasons. He rebuked his generation because they didn't know the season they were in. And we're in a season of transition as a, as a world and we need to be aware of those kind of transitions. Um, another thing is, why do I want to study this? Because it stretches my faith. Does it stretch your faith a little bit? It's like, gives me some new areas to go into. It's like, wow, I hadn't thought about that, or I hadn't seen that. It's like my faith has some capacities to expand, and I see some new things. It's like, again, I want to know God, and it takes faith without faith, it's impossible to please God. So my faith is expanded. It's deepened. It's enlivened. It's enriched by learning new things about my God, which means there's new things for us because we're created in his image. So um, John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. That's another reason. The more we know of God's word, the more God can make us like what we ought to be, right? his holy children, his godly children, full of wholeness and righteousness and peace and joy, things of the kingdom. Um, another reason is because Jesus tells us, Matthew five eighteen. well, let me just read it. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. It's like God's word is going to be fulfilled. Nothing's going to be left out. So whatever we find in there, at some point, the Holy Spirit's going to want to show us because it's all going to be happening in our lives and in our world, and we want to, again, be a part of it. Our modus operandi has never been, God, we're going to do this. Would you bless it? Our, our approach to church was, God, what are you doing? Help us to see that. How can we serve you? What are you up to? What do you want us to be a part of? that we can bless what you're doing right now in the earth, in our community, in our city, whatever it is. Um, Well, I've already mentioned the fact God seals up some things in the Scripture, and they're not going to be released until the end times or till later, he says. And I I think we're in that kind of season that that I talk about on my my last YouTube channel um, teaching. Okay, and then just the meta-narrative of the Scripture. Uh, God's too little to tell a little story. This is a big story that we're a part of. Heaven and earth, matter and spirit being synthesized, put together. I mean, we're already that, right? We have the Holy Spirit living in us. Spirit, 
The Spirit of God wants to live in us in a loving relationship, not, not violating us like, like a demonic spirit might do, not with compulsions and addictions and other kinds of things that plague us. But the Holy Spirit wants it to be Jesus as a gentleman, right? He stands at the door and knocks. If you hear my voice, open the door. Let me. It's like he wants to come in, but he wants us to say, I want you in my life, God. God wants to join matter and spirit. So this big story is going on. We got this heavenly family. We got the earthly family. And we need to get a hold of that big picture to serve God in all the ways he might want us to. There might be some things we're supposed to do that we don't know yet unless we understand God's story better. Okay. Uh, second question. We'll go down to some of you. I know you had some great questions, which, which I love. And the second one is this idea of there only being one God. And last week and just this morning, I said, no, there are a bunch of gods. Our, our problem with that statement is when we use the word God, we think of attributes. We think, you know, omniscient and omnipresent and, uh, 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 you know, omnipotent, all-powerful. You know, omniscient knows everything you can be known. It's like we think in attribute terms. But in the Bible, that's not the way the word God is used. It's not about attributes. It's just about a certain kind of being. Uh, but they're not all the creator God, Yahweh, the God we worship, who has the three big O's, you know, those, those attributes. So the word Elohim, 2,000 times and so in the Old Testament, it's not used in containing those attributes every time it's used. That's just not the way it is. So if we take away those attributes and just think of God, just think of him as a spiritual being, all right? Because that's what it is. It's a, it's a spiritual being. And not only the Old Testament, the New Testament says this. It says it plenty too. Just one example let me give you. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 Paul's talking about, he's teaching the Corinthian church about food sacrificed to idols. Should they eat that? Should they not eat that? That's not the important part of our question. But what does he say about these spiritual beings and idols? Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. So, First of all, again, the, the no God but one. And I'm going to say more about that in a second. Uh, so when I'm saying there are many gods, I'm talking about little g gods. They are divine beings. They're not angels. This is another, we talked last time about the, the different uh, categories of spiritual beings and, and identified some of that. And what are their assignments? What do we see them doing in the scriptures? So um, there are there are idols are nothing. He says, you know, the wooden stuff that people carve to represent some God or some other spiritual being. It's like, Paul says, those things are nothing. The little altars, what man makes, he says, that's nothing. That's what he says. Verse four, idol has no reason. And there's only one God. All right. So he says that clearly, which is what we believe. And, but then he says, verse five, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth. And then he says, as indeed there are many gods, and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God and Father from whom are all things. In other words, all these gods and these other lords, they were made by the creator, the God that we worship. From whom are all things. He made them from whom we exist. He made us. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. He's also the creator, the trinity here we've got, through whom we exist. So we know, Paul is saying, look, the idol stuff man makes and what they worship, it's not about that. But he says, there are other gods. There are other lords. They were made by the creator God, big G, they were made by the Lord Jesus. They were made for him and by him. And we'll see some other passages about that. 
because they are a part of the worshiping creation also. We're all supposed to worship him, including, including them. Uh, and so some of you, good theological thinkers, would come up with passages like Isaiah 45, verse 18, where God says, well, I'll just read it again. For thus says the Lord God who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth, he made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. Uh, he says, I am the Lord, there is no other. So how can we say, yes, there are other gods, when he says, no, there is no other? Well, understand when he says, there are no gods beside me, and there are a few other verses that make that kind of statement. It's not a statement of deniability. He's not saying, no, there aren't any other kinds of gods. It's a statement of comparability. He's saying, there's no God like me. It's like, I'm the creator. Yeah, there are other gods. I mean, they're my sons. They're called Bene Elohim, sons of God, all through the Old Testament. They're called the host of heaven sometimes. They're called different, different things, you know. People have different names and nicknames, and the same is true of spiritual beings. But God is the one creator God. So when he says, there aren't any other gods, he's saying, not, he's not denying that he has other sons, because he says that plenty of times. Uh, he's saying, compared to me, there, there's, there's nobody like me. I, I'm the one. I'm the creator. They're all my children. They're all my creation. That's what he's saying there. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, Deuteronomy 10, 17 says this, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, capital G, little g. He's the God of gods. So that's a pretty good definition there. You've got God, the creator, and then you've got little gods, those that he's created. Uh, again, these are not angels. This is a different kind of being that we're dealing with here. And he says, the Lord your God is God of gods. He is Lord of lords. Aren't these the same titles he gives to Jesus Christ when we get into the life of Christ, right? He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. So again, they're the same. They are the same God. He's the King of kings. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords, the mighty and the awesome God. It's like uh, Babylon in Isaiah 47. It makes the same kind of statement. Or even the city, they're talking about how great Babylon is, verse 8, verse 10. Uh, Babylon says, There's, there is no other city but me. It's like, well, yeah, there are lots of other cities, Babylon, but really it's a, it's a statement of pride. It's like, you can't compare me with another city. I'm it. You know, I'm what cities are supposed to be. So it's not really denying there are other cities when it says that. It's a comparability like, I'm the greatest city there is, that statement of pride. So there are verses that teach us comparability as opposed to existence. Um, uh, Psalm 89, Psalm 89, verse 5 through 7. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. We'll talk more about that assembly in just a minute. We talked about it last week some. Your assembly, uh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Verse 6, Psalm 89. For who in the skies, it's not talking about earthly people. And again, we talked about different translations. Some translations are going to take this stuff out. And they're going to use words like Israel or sons of Israel instead of sons of God when the word is Elohim because editors go like, it can't be other gods. There's only one, right? Uh, and so you've got sons of Israel. You've got judges. It's like judges aren't in the sky. These are different beings. So this is English Standard Version. Um, 
for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? There's a comparability thing. Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? And the issue is nobody. You can't compare anybody to the creator. Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? God, verse 7, Psalm 89, a gr greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones. God's divine counsel. This is hugely known and studied by scholars, the divine counsel of the Lord. We talked a little bit about that last week. And he is awesome above all who are around him. So the Bible's true, again, which we believe. You can't compare the creator God to any other God we're talking about. They're little G's. He's big G. They were created. He's uncreated. They're his children, just like we are his children. And, and again, he creates them in his image. They have free will. They have, they have what we have. They have emotions. And, and they live like that. And we're going to find some of them rebel, just like some of us. Well, all of us rebel, right? There's none without sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And some of them fall, some of them don't, and we'll see that as we look at some of the scriptures. So the sons of God, it's used a whole bunch of times in the Bible. Um, even when you, you get to, when you start thinking about, wait a minute, there are other sons of God. Here's my good theologians again saying, wait a minute, our beloved John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, what happens? It's like, Jesus is sent to save us, but what does it say about him? He's the only begotten son of God. Wait a minute, now you're saying there are other sons of God? And this says, no, Jesus is the only begotten son of God. There are no, there are no other sons of God he's made. Well, it's just like, again, the big G and the little G thing, because Jesus himself deals with that. And the truth is, in, in the Greek, the, the mono, I always say this word wrong, monogensis, it's a hard G, and I want to do it a soft G, monogensis, the word is translated only begotten. It can just as well be translated unique or one of a kind, one of a category. He is the only one of his kind. He is, the, he is unique among the sons of God. In fact, we know the sons of God sit in the divine council. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And God, again, does God need a divine counsel? We talked about that last week. No, he could do whatever he wants by himself, right? Well, the question is, does he need us? No, he could do whatever he wants by himself, but we're his family. He wants to raise up kids. And think about God not having anybody else like him, no free will, no choosing to do what we want. He eliminates love like that because love can't be coerced. He has to set us free, and he wants us to be free because that's what he is. And so... In our lives, we, we do things God doesn't want us to do, and it's true also in some of these sons of God. But Jesus is the unique son of God. The other ones sit in the divine council, which, again, we're going to look at in just a second, the divine council, but Jesus sits at the right hand of God in the divine council. He sits in the place of highest honor. And there is where we see, again, his uniqueness, that he is different. In fact, if you spent time in John chapter 10, where the Pharisees and all want to stone Jesus because he's claiming to be God, and John 10, 30 is pretty clear. Jesus says, I and the Father are one essence. Uh, but in that passage, he starts arguing with them, and Jesus makes the point, you're mad at me for saying, for saying that I'm a God. He says, God himself says there are other gods. Why are, you, why are you so upset about that? And he starts quoting Psalm 82, which is where we're going to land in a moment, if you want to open your Bible there. Psalm 82, Jesus starts quoting it, and he says, God says there are other gods. Have you, read the, have you read the Bible? He says, yes, there are other gods, but he says, 
I'm a unique son of God. I'm a God, I'm a different, but I'm one of those guys, even though I'm unique, I'm set apart, I'm still, I'm still one of those on the divine council. So don't get mad at me for saying I'm a son of God. And so they still want to stone him because now he's saying, well, he's a son of God when they don't believe in, but they're real, the monotheism. We're just one God. You can't have other gods. You can't have other sons of God. They can't exist. And so they want to stone him. Sometimes commentators will say, well, Jesus was just saying in, in quoting Psalm 82, well, everybody's really a child of God, right? I mean, everything he creates, this is his creation. We're, we're his sons. We would be okay with that statement for someone to say, you know, God creates us all. We're, we're creatively, we're all sons and daughters of God in that sense. We're his, we're his creation. If that was why Jesus was explaining, arguing with them about he said he's God, if that's what he said, the Pharisees would have been fine with that. They believed that everybody was creatively children of God, sons of God, daughters of God. They wouldn't have had any problem, but he makes that point, and what do they do right after he says that? We're going to stone him again. We're going to take hold of him. He's still saying he's a god. So Jesus uses the argument, there are, there are other gods. Don't get mad at me for saying I'm a god. I'm, I'm one of them, but you're all mad about it, you know, even though the Bible says there are sons of God. There are other beings like that. Well, but he sits again at the right hand. He is different. He is unique as a son of God. Psalm 82. Hope you got your Bibles there. Let's look at this spot. God, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version again, which is my new version, which I'm so brokenhearted over some of my new American Standard, which I've used since the 70s. Um, Psalm 82, English Standard Version. God has taken his place in the divine council. So in other words, these are not humans. This is a divine council. In the midst of the gods. You can't be in the midst of one. You can't just be one God if there is a midst of gods. All right? He's taking his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And, and once again, some of your translations are going to stick sons of Israel in there or judges in there or something else in there. But the word is bene Elohim, sons of God. How long will you judge unjustly? God is now fussing at these other gods, that he's, his children, that he's put on this council. And we're going to see later how he's assigned them to the nations and they're not governing like he wants them to. They're disobeying the Father. And so he's, how long are you going to show partiality to the wicked? He says, give justice to the weak, to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted, the destitute. Rescue the weak. And he cares. He's merciful. He wants to help people. But that's not what some of these sons are doing. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 6. So, he gets down to the judgment now. They were disobeying God. What does he say to them? You are God's. So there he is, God's saying it, <laughs> creator God, you are God's, little g, you are God's, sons of the most high, all of you. So I don't argue with God, that's what he says. These are beings are God's, they're sons of God, they're created by him. And when you think about that, you say, well, we'll look later at God's judgment. If you read ahead, you're going to find they get the same judgment we get when we send in Genesis 3, which is what? Loss of immortality. Right? Jesus, I mean, God says, when we sin, take them out of the garden. Don't let them have access to the tree of life because they're going to live forever. And here he says to these sons of God who didn't govern their nation that he assigned to them properly, he says, you're going to end up dying. You're going to lose your immortality for not doing what I've asked you to do. You've ruined these nations. So this is the story that we're in the midst of. Now, 
And I, and I do want to say, if you if you have other questions, please uh, please send those into the Calvary email or something, and um, we'll take we'll take a look at what we have time and uh, space to cover. And I'm sure Pastor Jeff will be speaking into this when he gets back. We we know you will, Pastor Jeff. We look forward to it. Um, let's just take one of the stories that we're familiar with and see how this scenario of other gods other beings changes the story that we're used to, the story of the conquest of the promised land. Let's look at that story, the conquest of the promised land. Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's got Joshua as his right-hand guy. And so they get, and they've come out of Egypt. They've seen all the miracles, all that God's done. God's sending them to the promised land, and he sends in 12 spies. Let's go check it out, see what we're up against, see how it's like. And at the very beginning of the story, what's the problem we're going to find here? That they come back, 10 of them, what do they say? We can't do it. Why can't we do it? Giants in the land. This is very important. We're like grasshoppers compared to these guys. These are giants. We can't go over there and conquer them. And because they said no to God, Joshua and Caleb, of course, they're, yes, we can do it. God said do it. We believe God. They were going to live by faith. The other 10 said no. All the other people are like, gosh, we're not going to go in there and fight those dudes. I mean, they've been slaves for 3,000 years or a couple of thousand years, whatever it was they were in Egypt, and now they got to be an army. It's like this was a big change, but they weren't willing to do and to be uh, a part of God's plan of taking the promised land. So, and the reason is there are giants in the land. Anakim, they're, they're called Nephilim, and we'll, I'm going to describe these in a minute. Uh, Rephaim would be the children of the, Nephi, the Nephilim. Uh, Anakim, sometimes they're called, but they're all the, the same group, these giant clans. Where do they come from? And what's happening is God is sending them into the promised land. I'll get to the big story before we finish. But he sent them in the promised land to destroy the giant clans. He wants them destroyed. Why? What's going on here? He doesn't want this to keep spreading because this abomination, really, of what's been created here is not what God intended for the human race. Who are the Nephilim that we're going to find? Like I said last week, we talked about if you ask a Second Temple Jew, time, a Jesus period, the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament up through Jesus' day, 70 AD, and they're going to destroy the temple, the Romans are. But during that period, Second Temple, three, four hundred years there, Jesus' time with all his disciples, they're called Second Temple Jews. The Second Temple has been built. They worship there in the synagogues and, and so forth. What do they believe? We talked about it last week. If you say, why is the world such a mess? We're going to say what? Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. They sinned in the garden. Satan tempted them. They said yes to Satan, no to God. And here we are. We've lost our immortality. We're kicked out of the garden, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what we find in the story on the other side is the, the Second Temple Jews are not going to say just Genesis 3. They're going to start there, to be sure. That's at the beginning. And then they're going to say, and Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. Genesis 6, we talked a little bit about. What do we have there? We have sons of God come down and take women, human women, as their spouses, right? They, they take whoever they want, it says. These are divine beings. They obviously have power to get done whatever they want to do, and they take human women, they mate with them, and they have children. And Genesis 6 tells us, who are the children? The Nephilim. 
who are the Nephilim. I mean, I think the word itself actually means giants. These, these are giants. These are big people, you know, eight, nine feet tall, whatever they were. They're different sizes, just like regular people, because there's a mixture of human DNA and divine being. We don't know how that works. Again, we're in areas of like, who knows how that works? But that's what the Bible tells us happens here. And so, and we talked a little bit about the book of Enoch. It's not in the scripture, at least not in ours. Some groups include it in their scripture. But uh, first Enoch, forget second and third Enoch. But first Enoch um, is even quoted in the New Testament. So just because something's not in the Bible doesn't mean everything in it's junk. There can be good history there. Some of the intertestamental books with the Maccabees and some of the others, the book of giants they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls with the, with the scroll of Isaiah. I mean, we've got the oldest and best complete copy of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that corrected some of the things that, that we had misunderstood before, or the words that we had mis, misunderstood. Um, and so here we find that these giants are produced by the breeding of these sons of God, it's a B'nai Elohim, Genesis 6, uh, with women, and their children are the Nephilim, these, this race of really big people. And it even says they're like the, they're some of the mighty men of old. Some of the stories we've heard, some of the stuff going on in the world back then, some of that is this. Maybe not all of that. I don't know if we could classify every story, but some of the mighty men of old are coming from this clan, this abomination. This is an abomination to God. And of course, then Nephilim, these, you know, these big guys, they're going to have children too, right? They have children. Their DNA spreads. Again, there are different mixtures here of now divine being and human. It's like, oh, this is not good. This is, this is an abomination before God. And everything, it's interesting. I don't have time to cover all this, but if you look all of these rebellious sons of God and divine beings, they're always trying to get in on what God has ultimately planned. They want to do it rather than letting God do it his way. They want to do it their way. Because the truth is, God does want to live in human beings, doesn't he? Right? God does want to have children who are material. We are sons and daughters of God. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. But it's not because you're a divine being come in and taking whoever you want and mating with them. It's because God says, would you let me in your life? I've made you for me. We're supposed to be together. It's the way you're designed as a human being. And so God wants to do this by a love relationship, by free will surrender uh, but so what are they doing? They're wanting to do the same thing, but they're wanting to do it by conquest, basically. We'll do what we please. We'll have our own kids. We'll put God and man together. And this is a huge heartbreak and abomination in the earth. And so these people who are passed on down from this lineage, you can think over the years, I mean, there, there are large groups of people, and some of them are giants, some of them are not, because again, the mixture of human and divine, however that works, they're going to be, things are going to get watered down, and and again, I wish I had more time, but some of the other nations, if you go, if you look at their religious writings, like the uh, Babylonians, I think it was, or was it the Assyrians? Oh, heck. Maybe it's the Assyrians, I think. They had these, they knew this story, these divine beings too. The Apkalu, they called them, and they liked it. They're glad these divine beings came to, hey, they can help us, you know. And again, you see some of the megalithic structures of old where our scientists today say, we couldn't pick up that rock. We couldn't have built that. Well, if you've got a God working with you, you can pretty well do whatever you choose, right? I mean, they can move those suckers real easy. But anyway, um, the, the, uh, Assyrians, they're talking about the Apkalu, these, again, watchers, these angels, and Daniel talks about the watchers uh, coming in, 
and some of them are good. I mean, it's like it's not these are all evil. These are God's creations. Some of them are good. Some of them are not good. Just we're all bad somehow. None of us have made it except for Jesus. Um, but the, the Assyrians, they would even get it down where they would see the different generations. And one of their leaders was, he's two-thirds Apkalu. It's like they could like breed the dog, I guess. It's like they, well, he's half poodle and half this, you know. It's like they kept records of those kinds of things. So you look at the other nations and you find they have some of these same stories. Almost all of them, the flood they have divine beings coming down and mating with women, the, the Tower of Babel, they've got the same stories, and yet they tell them differently. And you'll find a lot of the scripture, our scripture, Hebrew scripture, is actually written to counteract their interpretation of events, to say, that's not how it is. Especially like this with the Apkalu and the, and the Babylon, uh, the Assyrians, it's like, don't believe the way they're saying it. That's not, here's the way it is. This is evil. This is bad. We have had the human race corrupted. That's not what I meant for them to be. So we're talking about conquest of the promised land. We hadn't gotten there yet, have we? End of 40 years, it's time for, well, right before the end of the 40 years, Joshua and Moses are sent over to Bashan. Um, and there it's called the realm of Og. And Og is the king of the Amorites. And we see the Amorites in the Old Testament. And the scripture tells us he was a giant. Og is a giant. He's the king of the Amorites. In fact, he's called the last of the Rephaim. Again, Rephaim being children of the Nephilim. That's Nephilim first generation, these sons of God and women. Nephilim. And again, some of their names get mixed back and forth going through time. They'll call the ones down here, the Anakim, they'll call them Nephilim sometimes. So it's not exactly pure the way they use the language. But, um, when, you, when, it, when, they, when they go over there, what they find is, Joshua and, and Moses, they're going on the east side of Jordan now. You're thinking of Israel. And boy, are we in an interesting time, aren't we, to be talking about this. We didn't obviously plan this to coincide. In fact, we planned this before war broke out in Israel. Uh, but why is Israel important? Why is this little bitty chunk of land? I mean, it's 50 miles wide and 150 miles long. Israel's a tiny little place. How can it be so important? What's the big deal here? So Moses and Joshua go to the east side of Jordan. So you've got all of Israel stretching back to the west, which is all bordered on the Mediterranean Sea. And they find out that um, the giants are, are, are gone. Amos, Amos calls the Amorites, he calls them tallest cedars and strong as oaks. But at the end of the 40 years, um, what they find when they go up the east side is, it, the Bible tells us all of the giant clans have been driven out. And God tells Joshua and them, he says, he says when you go up there and you see, he said, don't bother the people of Moab. Don't bother the people of Ammon. Ammon. Why does he say that? He says, because the giants have already been taken out of the land. They're already gone. And they've been driven out actually by Esau, which is a, some of the relatives of the Israelites who settled there. They drove out these giants. So they're gone. And why did God send them up there? Because they're about to take the promised land, and he's wanted to show them, you haven't got any giants at your back. You're not going to have a two-front war, which is not a good thing if you're an army. One, enemies on both sides. The giants are gone over here. So leave those people alone. Now let's go in and take the promised land. That's the setup for this journey that they're about to make. Now, when you read Joshua and you find out how they go in and conquer the promised land, some places, Joshua and the people of Israel, they go in and they just drive out the people. 
And just get rid of them. You know, it's like, this is going to be your, this is the promised land. We can find out why in just a minute. But they just tell them, just, just drive them out. And, of course, there was war and, you know, all the stuff that happens to move people out. Um, but then sometimes their spies would go and say, we saw Nephilim there. We saw the Anakim there. We saw the Rephaim. We saw some of this giant clan there. And every time they saw the giant clan, and only when they saw the giant clan, God says, destroy everything. When you go to that place where you've seen the Rephaim, the, the, the Nephilim, destroy everything. All the people, all the animals, leave nothing. This is a huge abomination. And all of the generations that have passed down through this bloodline. And here these Nephilim are ruling these areas because they're, they're the big guys, right? They're the mighty men. People bowed down to them. And the, the giant clans have been taught from way back from the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, hate the God of Israel and that people. Hate them. Destroy them. They are not going to take your place. This is for you. So there's this huge animosity between these giant clans and all of their hosts and people who they lived among. And every time where they were there, God says, destroy everything. But when they go into places they're not there, he doesn't tell them that. Just go in and take the land. Go in and take the land. I actually think, and I would have to go back and look up this specific, I think there's one exception where they did, I don't think God told them to destroy everything, but I think they destroyed everything. So I do want to put that on the table. I can't remember exactly. I don't think God said destroy everything, but I think they said, let's devote this, you know, called it devoted, and we'll destroy it all. Um, so what we see in the conquest of the promised land, it started out with a problem, the reason they didn't go in 40 years older, because of the giants. And now we're finding out the reason they're going in is to kill the giants, to get rid of all these clans that have passed down this abomination, this mixture of human and divine in a way God did not want. And a lot of people died because of this. I mean, there is a lot of consequence to this sin. And of course, we know what? The wages of sin is death. Every one of us is going to die because of sin, except for Jesus. And then we're going to live forever. So death is... Death is a judgment that is, again, you're not immortal. You're not what you could have been or should have been. Of course, we will be now because of the redemption of Jesus. That's the bigger story on the other side that hopefully we'll get to some next week. Um, so, but they, they destroyed everything where the Nephilim were there. They drove out others. Um, this lineage between these watchers, uh, the human women, the Nephilim, their descendants, they were raised up to hate God and to hate God's people. And so in this light, this is spiritual warfare is what's happening here on an earthly plane. This is spiritual warfare on an earthly plane played out on earth because of Genesis 6, because of the sons of God. Either God's people would survive or they're going to be annihilated. That's the choice God has as he's sending them into this land he's promised all the way back to Abraham. Humans are going to be raised up to sit on the divine council. This is God's plan. Again, he wants to put, he doesn't want to kick the other, his B'nai's, his Elohim, his other sons of God off. Some of them did get kicked off because they sinned. Just like when we sin, we lose what God wanted us to have too. But God's ultimate plan was, I want my two families together. We're going to rule all of creation. We're going to govern it, make it beautiful and all that's inhabitable and full of sharp thinking kingdom of God everywhere. And this is what God wanted to do. But at some point, some of the divine council are like, those guys are going to sit with us? 
Sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't it, when Jesus shows up? They hated Jesus. Why? He was taking people's hearts away from them, away from their way, away from even some of their teaching. And they're like, wait a minute, we got to kill this guy. That's exactly what's happening with the Nephilim and the children of Israel. So this is a divine battle, a spiritual battle that's being played out on earth, and it involves both of his families, ours and the spiritual family, and God does not want this contamination to spread. He wants the glory of the kingdom to spread. So this epic battle is happening between good and evil in the conquest of the promised land. Joshua could drive out the other people, but where there were Nephilim, destroy it. Destroy everything, burn everything, just get it off the earth. It doesn't belong here. So Joshua, it's interesting when he defined victory, I think in chapter 11 or whatever, when he's discussing that, he says, there are no more Anakim in the land. That's what he meant by victory. The, the, all the giant clans are gone. There aren't, there aren't any more. Now, there were still some, there were still some of these Nephilim and these Anakim, these guys, these big guys running around, but they were driven out of the promised land. They were gone. And they went over into the Philistine cities, the ones that were left, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, Anybody remember a city called Gath? Who is a famous person from Gath? They'll let that sink in for a bit for you good theologians out there. Eventually, what we find out is these these Nephilim or these giant clans that went over to those cities, they got a hero from the city of Gath. He's going to defy the armies of the living God except for one little shepherd boy. And David faces Goliath, the giant from the Philistines. When he comes, he says, who is this guy? It's like, why should we be afraid of him? And David takes the head of Goliath. It's like, and we need to remember, David is a prophetic type of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be the end of the story. He's going to put an end. I'm sure we'll cover it in days ahead. We want to get the basic story out here. But Jesus Christ reverses Every problem in Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 11, he reverses every one of them. And we're going to see that. We'll, I'm, Jeff won't let me. I'll just take over one Sunday. Uh, or he can do it. So, Goliath is killed. We, we see that as a prophetic type of what's coming. Jesus is ultimately going to fully reverse this and do, do away with all of the, the abomination and bring the kingdom of God to bear on the earth. So the promised land is ultimately about putting down this heavenly rebellion that started way back in Genesis 6. That's about the conquest of the promised land. That's what's going on here. It resulted in the earthly contamination, human bloodlines and DNA and all that's going on there. God is protecting his children by destroying this abomination. doesn't want any of that bloodline left over in some place or some person. He, he, wants to, he wants to live in us, but he wants to do it out of love and invitation and surrender. That's what he's looking for. And he's not going to let this other thing stand. So he, just, he, he sends his children in to destroy this contamination. The conquest of the promised land is doing away with this rebellion from Genesis 6, the contamination that it brought about, and he's protecting his kids and his land, the promised land. Now, this has been 
I mean, this is a cosmically empowered threat, right? We're talking about divine beings, so we shouldn't go light on that. Even the angel, the archangel, Michael, he says what in Jude, where, where, where he says, be careful about reviling angelic majesties. I'm not even going to do that. It's like, I'm not putting my words on that. He knows that is not a safe. So be careful about thinking, uh, you know, oh, yeah, 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 we'll just kick them all out. This is a this is a big war. We've got authority, and Jesus clearly tells us nothing of the enemy is going to harm you if you're standing in the authority of Christ. I wouldn't want to do that without that. But be sure that there are some game plans you might not want to run if you start shouting at angelic powers and authorities. Paul in the New Testament, we saw the 1 Corinthians 8 passage where he says, yeah, there are other gods and other lords, uh, but they were created by the one God that we worship. And he talks about in Ephesians 6, right, that we don't wrestle just against flesh and blood. What are we wrestling against? Principalities and powers of wickedness in heavenly places. This is a New Testament story, too. This is not just Old Testament. This is a New Testament story. Of course, you read the book of Revelation, then you really begin to see it boil over, and you're going to see some of these that have been assigned to the abyss. Revelation 9, they're coming out of there. It's going to be very much a spiritual warfare place again. That's why we're going to see a lot more of the things of the Spirit poured out, the power of the Spirit before this thing is over. God is not going to let us go unequipped to this battle. So this cosmically empowered threat, what is God trying to do? Why does he want to promise land? God never gives up on his, his story. He, he, I mean, he's going to finish what he started, right? Philippians 1, 6, even in us. You know, God will complete the good work he started in us. He, he's not going to lose this. This is God we're talking about. But his story is big, and it's powerful, and it's broad, and it's deep. And so what God is doing, if you look at, um, well, I don't want to go back that far. Let's, let's just say this, that what God is doing, he's starting his story over. He's given a promised land because he wants to create a new Eden. He wants to create a new garden of God. And we know if we go to the last days, we go to Revelation and, and Isaiah 40 beyond there, and a lot of other the Old Testaments talking about the last days. He's talk, he'll start in this little place called Israel, and what will he do? He's going to expand it out from there for the glory of the kingdom to rule and reign over all. But he starts it with one little spot. And when you find that out, that if you think of the promised land as God's new Eden, there again you'll see why these, these sinful sons of God really were fighting against it. They didn't want Eden to start with. What does the devil do when you get into Eden? He goes in immediately like, i got to mess this up. I don't want these people coming up to rule and reign. I don't want them doing that. And so he attacks. This is the first attack from, from that level. I mean, even Satan is defined as the guardian cherub of, of Eden, right? And we know he's, he's in this inter... I mean, again, I've said this before. Eden is an interdimensional place. It touches heaven and earth. This is not just one physical location. It's meant to spread into the physical that exists around... It's, God, it's like the garden of God around his home and the temple of God that we can see in the heavenly places that Isaiah sees, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they get visions of this. That's why they wouldn't build houses for themselves. They were always nomadic. Why? Because, well, we're in the promised land. Thanks, God. This is great, but I'm not... You showed me a city, Hebrews 11, what, verse 8 through 10 there. He says, I'm waiting for this city you showed me whose architect and builder is God. That's what I want to be a part of. I'm not going to build me a house. I'm waiting for that house. They're wanting this glorious temple of God to be a part of earth. And the Garden of Eden, the whole world is meant to become the Garden of Eden. 
the dwelling place where God does what? He walks and talks with man in the cool of the garden. His fellowship intimate with us. That's what he's after. Well, I'm going to just skip that. (laughs) I mean, over here in the back of my head, there's this little bell going off. You know, the Antichrist may have something to do with this bloodline of the Nephilim. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or not. But I'm wondering what Jesus is going to do in the defeat of the Antichrist, if that's not the final play in this abomination is somehow. I'm not saying it is. I'm just, that's just kind of ringing around back there. So Eden, where Adam and Eve were, it was meant to spread the, the interdimensional reality. Heaven and earth were meant to come together, and he's meant to bring the natural creation into the fullness of its fellowship, its relationship with the divine order, the, the spiritual creation that's there. So God never gives on that. He, he takes nation to himself, Israel, and he wants to start a new Eden, but the Anakim and the Rephaim, these guys are in his way. They hate him. They don't want this to happen, so they're doing everything they can stop it. I mean, the first two rebellions, Genesis 3 produces Satan, Genesis 6 produces the Nephilim and demons, and have you ever thought about that? Jim and I ran each other to the doctor's office this week, and we started talking about demons. Like, do you know where demons come from? What do we always think? Because last week I said, we always believe in, you know, gods and angels and people and demons. That's about the only categories we had. But clearly the Bible teaches a lot more categories than that. Where do the demons come from? And we would always say fallen angels. I mean, that's like the only option we have, right? Well, what else is there? Where else could they come from? The Bible never tells us demons are from fallen angels. Demons are from dead Nephilim. People who have the abomination of this spiritual bloodline where you have divine beings who have mated with humans, and when the human body dies, this divine spirit hangs around on earth. It's not going to die. You say, well, humans don't die either. No, but when a human dies, you go to be, if you're dead, you're what? In the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or to be assigned to the place of the dead, the scripture teaches us. Tartarus, the place of darkness and the dead. They await judgment there. So the scripture tells us what happens to humans, but these these bloodline that's messed up, these Nephilim die, the Anakin, the Rephraim, all, 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 you spread it all down through the bloodline. I don't know how much it takes to survive, but they have something divine in them. It hangs around. It wants a body. It doesn't, because that was their whole thing of coming to begin with, right? Let's put this together our way. Let's not wait on God's way. Let's do it our way. And so they're wanting to put this together. And now there's one more rebellion. I don't have time to cover it, but there's another set of bad guys on the landscape, and ultimately they're going to be the solution of God's redemptive plan coming to pass. But let me just give me five minutes, and I'll quit. The story of Babel, we think we know that story, right? Genesis 11, verse 4, verse 6, 7, verse 9. We think we know the story of Babel. Do you know the story of Babel from Genesis 32? Because that's where we find something very powerful about it. In fact, let's just turn there. Genesis 32. I think I read this last week. Genesis 32. And I'm sorry, but if you don't have a more modern translation after the Dead Sea Scrolls, or you may see this in the margin. Some of them, as they've updated, they they didn't change their regular words, but they know, hey, Dead Sea Scrolls said something different from this and their older translation. And you always want to go to the oldest, the closest to the source. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the numbers of the people to the numbers of, some of your translations say what? Sons of Israel, right? Other things like that. 
But the Hebrew says he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the Elohim, the numbers of the gods. And I did mention that last week because I talked about the Ugarites and their writings and their religion, and they're the closest to the, to the Hebrews. And we know from theirs, they said, oh, yeah, there's a divine council. It's got 70 gods on it, and Baal is the head, but he's the co-regent of El, this, this creator god. He just sent Baal to work with these 70 gods, and these sons of God manage the nations. That's the way the Ugarites saw it, which is pretty close. You get to Genesis 10, what's called the Table of Nations. When, this, is, this story, this is Babel here. This is where, when did God, there weren't any nations before the, the Babel, right? There, there weren't any nations. They all spoke the same language. You guys, leave me alone. Uh, they, they, are, <laughs> they know I'm going to go over five minutes. They're just kind of going, yeah, well, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, the, the table of nations, Genesis 10, Babel, that's where, there were no nations before Babel. That's when he divides, scatters them up, signs them to different nations, gives them different languages, right? That all happens then. But in Genesis 10, when he did that, how many nations does he create? Seventy. How many Ben Elohim does the Ugarites say there are? Seventy. Now, could they... You know, they could be wrong, obviously, but on the other hand, it's a pretty interesting coincidence, isn't it? When you start reading some of the other nations and what they believed about these things. Uh, so God here, he says, okay, man has sinned, and I won't talk about the Tower of Babel, why that's a sin and what they were doing there, but God's punishment is, okay, I'm going to divide these guys up. I'm going to put them in different nations, and I'm going to assign different gods to govern them. And then God says, I'm going to take one little bitty nation. Because understand here, this can't make any sense to say the number of the sons of Israel. Israel didn't even exist. This is Deuteronomy. There is no Israel. It's like when the tower, I mean, of course, this is telling the story from the, Deuteronomy is telling the story from the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. There was no Israel in Genesis 11. So here we have God making the nations, and he says, verse 9, what does he say? He's given the nations to all these other gods to govern. It says, verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, this is his allotted inheritance. Of course, Jacob is going to re be renamed Israel. He hadn't been yet uh, when the Tower of Babel happened. He, wasn't even he didn't even exist then. So this is all telling history of how God chose Israel. He said, I'm going to show you how to do it with this little bitty nation. And I'm going to start with this guy, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He comes in, and he's going to do this story. Well, these other 70 nations, or how many, you know, how, God assigns different angelic beings. And it's interesting, even some of the older translations that are more paraphrases, it'll risk using the right words. Uh, I think the message even says something like, God assigned angelic majesties to govern each nation, or something like that, which, again, that's way better than the sons of Israel as a translation. But anyway, God says, I'm going to show you how to do it with this one. But these other guys, some of them rebelled against God, said, we don't want these guys on the divine council. And some of them also thought, you know what? I'm going to make my, worship, my, my nation worship me, not him. And they began to teach the nations things like how to dig ore, how to smelt, how to make metals. And instead of doing improvement of society, what did they teach them to make? Swords and shields and weapons and thought, it's kind of like a big game of risk. I think I'm going to have my people attack these people and take their spot. It's like some of them broke out into war, even against each other. Obviously, when you turn to evil, you'll hurt anybody, right? And these guys, they're in rebellion against God, and they begin to govern the way they want and so God assigned them. They're not following his lead the way he's trying to show in his people. 
And so that's the story of the divine counsel we get to in Psalm 82. And, and God takes his place, Psalm 82, in the divine counsel, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgments. How long are you going to keep helping the bad people and not helping the good people, he says. So he pronounced judgment, verses 6 and 7, Psalm 82. I said you are gods. You are sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you will die, and you will fall like any prince. God says, no immortality for you guys. You have not done what I've asked you to do. You've harmed the nations, not helped the nations. So this is what starts now God's redemptive plan to save the earth in this way. And the lineage of the Messiah is going to come out of this little nation. That's again why these, all these other gods don't want these things happening. They want to hold their power just like, again, the Pharisees did. Some of the passages, and I will, I'm going to read two more passages and I'm going to quit. Some of these passages say that this punishment in Psalm 82, 6, and 7, this punishment is going to occur at the end times in the last days. It's withheld until then. And we know Genesis 6, God locked up the original guys that, that did that with the women. He put them in Tartarus, chained them in darkness. Um, but again, other ones rebelled after that. So you still got Nephilim coming up. You've got other things happening there. But in the last days, sometimes, and if you go through the Old Testament and you're looking for these sons of God, you're going to find, you know, Bene Elohim scattered throughout in a bunch of different places. It's talking about the sons of God. Uh, and sometimes they're called the host of heaven. You think, well, he's talking about sun and moon and stars. And sometimes the host of heaven does mean sun and moon and stars. But there are several places it says the sun and the moon and the stars and the host of heaven. A lot of times the host of heaven is defined as a different group. It's talking about these divine beings. They are not angels, but they are sons of God. They had managerial authority, so to speak. And But now they're judged, but they're locked away or they're chained, or some of them again are loose, pending. But... Um, the prophets will tell us in the last days, the hosts of heaven are going to be punished. That's going to happen at the end. Isaiah 34, verse 2. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He's talking about the heavenly hosts here. He has devoted them to destruction, given them over to slaughter. One of my favorite prophecies, Isaiah 24 through 27. It's one, one prophecy in those chapters. And chapter 24 kind of gives a summary of the whole last days, just one, one quick picture. And at the end of chapter 24, verse 21, it says, on that day, it's talking about when the Lord Jesus returns, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, in the heavenly arena, and the kings of the earth on the earth. So heaven gets their judgment, earth gets their judgment. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison, but after many days, they will be punished. So they're locked in the darkness of Tartarus. So the ultimate victory is going to be won by Jesus. He is going to redeem the human family, and he's going to bring us, what does he say? Even in Revelation 3, he, he, he says we can be exalted to what? To sit on the throne of God. It's like we get to be in the divine council. Human beings get to be a part of God's rule and reign. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says God, Jesus has saved people by his blood. And what is our assignment after that? He says, and they will reign upon the earth. They will reign upon the earth. Earthly creation. I hate not to tell you the truth, but I hate not to read these other two verses or passage. Ephesians 1, New Testament. Let's go New Testament real quick. New Testament What's the story of Jesus? In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. What is his will? According to his purpose. What is his purpose? He set it forth in Christ. What is he doing? 
Verse 10, Ephesians 1, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. He wants to put his families back together. That's what Jesus is doing. Colossians 1, same story, verse 15 through 20. He is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So now we're dealing with the physical creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These are things in heaven and on earth, right? There are earthly rulers. There are heavenly rulers, heavenly authorities in that heavenly dimension over nations, over different things. They were created through him, through Christ, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He sustains all this creation. He's the unique son of God. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 20, and through him, what's God doing? To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross of Jesus is about the salvation of heaven and earth becoming the family God wanted it to be, the creation God had in his heart. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have sent your son for us because you loved us, Lord. You didn't abandon us because of our sins. You still don't, Lord. You still are a good shepherd that, Lord, when I wander away, you leave the 99, you come looking for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've never let me go. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. God, for your loving kindness. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are making a home in us, in me. Lord, this is what you want, to bring your family together. Thank you. God, we love you. Teach us. Show us, lead us, God, that we might serve your purposes in this earth and bring glory to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this episode from Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary Community Church, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com.